that's something that so many of us do is we buy all this crap that we don't actually need and then we pay for it for the rest of our lives. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yanis Jr. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. On this show, we democratize the film criticism conversation by bringing on fans and critics alike to talk about either a movie of their choice, something they grew up with, something they have a personal connection to, or just a really cool movie. And, and that, this movie, I think, in this sense, uh, in this episode, kind of hits possibly several of those. We'll, we'll see. Uh, so I'm, I'm pleased to welcome back to the show, Ashley Grant. Welcome back to the show. Excuse me, the famous Ashley Grant. Whoa, whoa, what's up? <laughs> I'm happy to be here. I can't wait. So can you tell people listening and who didn't listen to our uh, confidence episode from, what was that, January? Jeez, it's been a while. Um, Who you are and what you're up to and what, you know, where, uh, what your whole deal is. Well, I am a blogger and I also do a lot of ghost blogging for small businesses. Um, So that's kind of just what I do. My day job is the ghost blogging. And then by night, I try to get internet famous. Aren't we all trying to get internet famous these days? I mean... Well, I said internet famous, but not Kardashian famous. Yeah, no, that's I'll, a different kind of that's a different kind of famous by night. No, yeah, <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so, so you when we we talked about uh, this a movie, I guess on the last episode, and Kai had actually mentioned about it. So this film, without mentioning the name of the movie, which we're going to do in a few minutes, it came out in 1999. So you and I were just talking about right before I officially started the episode about how 1999, this film included, was really, there was a, a whole lot of like anti-establishment films out there. We talked briefly about The Matrix and Office Space and things like that. So, you know, you and I were around in 1999. Any sense what the hell was going on in 1999 that everybody was like over it at that point? Honestly, I don't even know. I just know that I was a freshman in high school just trying to get by. So I guess our parents were just really pissed off. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And this this one is probably, I mean, even American Beauty, too, which won Best Picture uh, for the 1999 cinema year. It's just an overarching message of breaking out of the confines of daily life and and, uh, you know, capitalism and advertising and, and just, you know, breaking out of being a consumer and kind of living your life to the fullest, which is, in theory, a, a message I, I can get behind. Um, I think, you know, this movie specifically goes really off the deep end with it. Um, so so I guess, you know, what do you we can kind of just transition into talking about this movie. Well, why why did you pick Fight Club? as the movie that you wanted to talk about. And then we can kind of, da, 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 that's the movie we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I chose this movie because I have watched it more times than is probably normal for a human. Um, it really spoke to me. Like I quote that movie probably more than any movie I quote. Um, you know, it's just, it's one of those flicks that you either love it or you hate it. And I absolutely loved it. It just, it, like I said, it spoke to me. It really made me think about things from a different perspective. I just love it. <laughs> like, that's the best way I can describe it. I don't know if you're ready to jump into, like, why I love it, but I I absolutely love this film. Like, I, I would watch it. Like, if it's on, I, I'm watching it. Like, that's just all there is to it. I right. love that movie. 
<laughs> yeah. Normally, before we get into the movie, I do a lot of how we know each other thing. But I feel like people who listen to the other episode already know now who you are. We've we've known each other since forever. We used to work at AMC theaters like a million years ago, and then um, now we're both freelance writers, kind of doing ghostwriting and miscellaneous other things. So. Um, so yeah, so this was kind of a, a natural extension of your last appearance on, on the episode. And it's, it's a very different kind of movie than confidence. Uh, but, but it still has, and kind yet of it's a, not. yeah, I was going to say it still has kind of a similar stylistic vibe to it. Uh, what do, what do you think it is about those, these two movies, um, in particular that, that draws you to them and what do you think they have in common? Well, I think, you know, with with confidence, the, the thing that I liked so much about it was that the characters were confident. They they were sure of themselves. They knew what they were doing. And, and I think that's what I love so much about Fight Club as well is, you know, the character is coming into his own. And even though he does it in a very strange way, um, he's still figuring out who the hell he is and, and what he's doing with his life. And it's just... You know, as you're watching it and you're you're going through the the progression of of how he comes to be and ha- realize who he is, you just gotta watch it, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, and and that's a that's a theme that I feel like most people can relate to. I mean, now I, I just turned as of this recording, I turned 36 the, the, yesterday, so uh, it's. It you know I, I still feel like I'm I mean I'm married with a kid and I'm still kind of like well, what what the hell what is what am I doing here what's my point what's my purpose I'm trying to figure that out and part of it is doing this podcast so that's good I guess I nailed part of it down a little bit but I think I feel like that's a perpetual journey that everyone is on and when you're a kid you just assume oh I'll have it figured out when I'm 25 or when I'm 30 or whatever when I settle down I'll be like I got everything under control and then the older you get the more you realize oh you just never feel like you have things figured out apparently. At least most people don't. Yeah, and you know it's it's interesting that you're that we've been talking about like as we're growing up because one of my favorite quotes um, in the movie is we've all been raised on television to believe that one day we'd all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars, but we won't, and we're slowly learning that fact, and we're very very pissed off, mm-hmm. and that's why I was saying like I wonder were our parents in the generation before us were they all the ones that were so pissed off that they created these types of flicks because they wanted to talk about how you know the American dream is bull, <laughs> and then they wanted you to know the truth. <laughs> yeah, I mean at this when this movie came out, we were in high school, we were teenagers, so this wasn't really aimed at us. This was definitely resonating more with our parents' generation. So, um, and it's funny to hear Brad Pitt say, oh, you know, we're all want to be movie gods, except we're not. And I'm like, but you're Brad Pitt. So it's ironic that you're saying that. Um, yeah. <laughs> so because I, he is a movie guy. That's I mean, what I'm come saying. On, let's face it. And, and we'll talk yeah. more about what this film did maybe for his career and his image and things like that in a, in a second. But um, but yeah, it, it's it's definitely a movie that I think I, I actually will talk about you know, when I first watched it and stuff in, in a minute. But um, I think definitely resonates more with me now than it than it did the, when it came out or whenever I first saw it. Um, and it's 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 a complicated experience watching this movie for me. I haven't revisited it as much as you have, so I feel like now we're talking about our experience with the movie. So we should just kind of transition into uh, obviously this episode. We're going to be talking about Fight Club, directed by David Fincher. So let's listen to a little bit of the trailer right now. Like many of you, I was stuck. You want me to deprioritize my current reports until you advise of a status upgrade? Make these your primary action items. I couldn't sleep. No, you can't die from insomnia. I'd flip through catalogs and wonder, what kind of dining set defines me as a person? This is your life, and it's ending one minute at a time. I prayed for a different life. So, 
make and I sell soap. And this is how I met Tyler Durden. Come on, hit me before I lose my nerve. Okay. Ow! You hit me in the ear! It was on the tip of everyone's tongue. Can I be next? We just gave it a name. Gentlemen, welcome to Fight Club. The first rule of Fight Club is... Wow, nice. You do not talk about Fight Club. Is that your blood? Some of it, yeah. After Fight Club, we all started seeing things differently. You're gonna have to keep me up all night. And she ruined everything. You're not into her, are you? No, God, not at all. We've all been raised on television to believe that one day we'd all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars, but we won't. He had a plan. <laughs> to what purpose? In Tyler, we trusted. That was a little bit of the trailer for Fight Club, directed by David Fincher. So as I was saying, I first saw this movie, I don't even remember, or maybe maybe early 2000s, like I did not see it when it first came out. It wasn't necessarily on my radar. I was a kind of a budding cinephile at that point. When did you first see it, and, and how has your relationship with Fight Club uh, developed over the years? I'm pretty confident that the first time I saw it was in college, because this is the type of movie that I would not have been allowed to have watched whenever I was a kid. Right. Um, you know, these were uh, the the graphics in it, the verbiage in it, the 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 um, the bad language. You know, that would not have been allowed in my household. So I definitely didn't see it till college, and I was really grateful that I saw it whenever I first got to college. And I'll tell you why. At that time, it seemed like everyone around me was trying so hard to, you know, get the next expensive bag or go to the next exclusive club. And, and you know, there was a lot of money being spent that you could tell people didn't have. I mean, I remember, you know, I went to USF and I know you did too, but um, University of South Florida, go Bulls. Um, I remember one of my first experiences on campus was I was going to get a Subway sandwich and outside of the Subway was a guy who was giving away free pizza in exchange exchange for you signing up for a credit card. And you have all these students who are broke as a joke, but they're all trying to live these rock star lifestyles. So they're going up and they're getting this free slice of pizza in exchange for a credit card. And it was just very eye opening to, you know, if you if you head down a certain path, you're going to start doing exactly what the character Tyler Durden says in the movie and letting the things you own own you. Yeah. I wrote and, that down too. That quote, that's one of yeah, the best ones. Oh my God. That's the quote. I, I, Oh my God. I love that quote so much. And I try to remember it anytime I start buying, you know, frivolous stuff that I don't actually need in right. my apartment, you know? And so that's why I was so glad that I did find it whenever I got to college and I just kept watching it over the years. Same reason that I would watch office space and matrix is, you know, you, you get addicted to, um, to learning more about how not to be a sheep. <laughs> yeah. No, that's that's definitely true. And, uh, you know, it's it's funny because me being a student of pop culture, like a lot of that, like you're bombarded with that kind of thing. Every time I go on my phone on Facebook, it's like it, to a certain extent, following entertainment kind of falls down that rabbit hole, too, because you're obsessing over little details of things and you're just kind of too plugged in to really see what's if you <laughs> it's Ferris Bueller thing. It's if you don't um, stop and look around once in a while. You, you'll miss it, that kind of uh, mindset. And I feel like uh, Fight Club definitely touches on that a lot. And at the time when I saw it, and you know, we'll, we'll get to this in a second here, as um, I, I felt it was really, it's obviously a very dark film, but I, I felt like it was more, uh, I don't know, more depressing than anything else. Do you feel like it's, do you feel like this movie in a way is kind of inspirational or do you feel like it's 
uh, it has the opposite effect. I think it depends on the mood you're in when you watch it. Right. No, <laughs> I, I really do because no, that's, like that's true. That's definitely a because the, you know the other night whenever I was watching it again for the for the first time in just a couple of weeks, <laughs> I was in a really good mood, and so watching it, I was like, oh my god, that part's hilarious. You know that part's hilarious. But I can definitely see how if you're watching it at a time whenever you're in a bad mood, you're like, oh my god, I hate the world. Everyone needs to die. I should just be a loner. You know, it's just it, it definitely depends on the mood at, at which you're taking it in. It, <laughs> it also reminded me a little bit too, and I think the Helena Bonham Carter factor is part of this. It reminds me that I, that's how I feel about the Sweeney Todd movie that she was in with Johnny Depp, which I really love. But it also has a everybody sucks, we all deserve to die. There's either the people that step on everyone else to get where they want to be, or there's the people us being stepped on that it's like either way, let's just check out because none of this is worth it. And so it has a very extremely cynical vibe to it, which this movie also has too. And I think it's true. It is kind of a litmus test. If you're coming to it with an element of hope, you know, then, then that, you know, that you're living your life differently, that you can make changes and feel more fulfilled with your lifestyle and with your buying habits. And this movie obviously gets more into consumerism than anything else in a lot of ways. Then, then it's it almost reaffirms that that lifestyle. But if you look if you're if you look at it from the other direction, you're like, oh man, we're all doomed. We're just like stuck in this. Maybe we should just blow everything up. Everything's a mess. So let's just let's just burn it all down, and everybody could be uh, economically. Uh, uh, what does she say? Economically uh, equivalent. Uh, economic equilibrium. That's what it was. Um, yeah. So. So yeah, it it does depend very much on the on the way that you um, the way that you view it. But it's it's crazy because this movie, when it came out in 1989, it came out uh, after Seven and after The Game from David Fincher, The Game, which was a financial disappointment. This only made 37 million domestically and 100 worldwide, which is not great considering it cost 63. But yet it's become it's emerged as a cult film, probably for a lot of the reasons of why you said you you know keep revisiting it. And people that are like us that saw it maybe in high school or college and didn't really get it, but then over the years were like, oh man, there's Tyler Durden speaking truth. Um, it's become insanely culturally relevant. Especially considering the fact that we're in an age right now, I mean, you, you see it every day in the media where there there's constant reports of the fact that people our age, we can't get houses, we can't get car loans, we can't even get jobs. And you know, of course we're going to want, you know, to fight against the system because the system screwed us. And so that's why this movie is still becoming so culturally relevant because everything that's in it is everything we're feeling right now. I mean, whenever we're saying, you know, you're not your job, you're not how much money you have in the bank. Well, of course not. What we'd rather do instead of having all this crap that we don't need is we want experiences. We want human connection. We want to feel like we matter and like the world gives a damn about us. And I, I just think that that's why, you know, I've started loving this movie more than I ever have as I'm getting older. Um, because it, it just, it really speaks to the fact that you don't want to collect stuff anymore. Mm-hmm. You don't want to collect, um, more credit card debt. You don't want to collect more consumer debt of any kind. What you want is to stand up and be on your own. And, and, and I mean, I understand that yes, no man is an Island, but at the same time, you know, you can at least build something that matters. And I just love the movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tyler- I'm starting to go on a rant. I'm no, no, all- that's, that's all good. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, well, that's the that's the that's the point of having the guest pick. You know, mostly for the most part, pick the movie because then you get that kind of passion. You're like, oh, I just love this movie so. Like, I just rec- I just recorded recently an episode of uh, of the podcast where I was talking about Who Framed Roger Rabbit to my mom, which is a movie I grew up with. I still have my Roger Rabbit doll from when I was like five, and um, and I was just basically an hour of me going, like, oh, it's so awesome! It's I just love it so much. They're basically, the exact same kind of thing you're doing. So that's that's awesome. That's exactly what we want on here. Um, I hope we can still be friends. I've never seen that movie. Oh, so you should see that movie at least. <laughs> You should at least see it once. That makes me sad. Um, <laughs> but he says, Tyler says in the movie, he says, we're working jobs. We hate to buy things we don't need, basically. And, uh, you know, I, I know within, in recent years, at least, I know you've come to embrace more and more kind of the digital nomad lifestyle. And uh, that, that's part of that is is having a more minimalist approach to stuff. Uh, so, I, I, you know, I, I'm not surprised that this movie resonates with you so so closely. And both of us are freelance writers. Both of us are all about not being stuck in a cubicle 40 hours a week and, and having a little more uh, freedom and flexibility um, to decide our own life and how we, you know, <laughs> how we how we spend this time that, that we have on this earth. And you know, he says in the movie, this is your life and it's ending one minute at a time. And so many people are just like, yeah, but I got to I got to get to work and then clock out and then hopefully, you know, bust my ass and maybe get somewhere and move ahead, but probably not. And, and just move on to the next thing. So can you talk, talk about a little bit about how your career path uh, sort of parallels the, this movie? Oh man. Like I said, I, I, I'm pretty sure the first time I saw this movie was when I first got to college. And, um, when I was first in college, I, I changed my major several times. The first you know, degree I was headed towards was marketing and, and economics. And I was absolutely convinced I was going to own my own business and, and, you know, make a bunch of money. And then I had this like crisis of conscience where I was like, no, I need to do something to give back. And I, I was convinced I needed to be a teacher. So I changed my major to education and I, you know, went gung ho about it. I was going to be a high school studies teacher, social studies teacher and you know, all this stuff. But then as I started like really thinking about what I wanted to be when I grow up, <laughs> which I still haven't done, same. you know, it, it became pretty clear to me that, um, I don't do well with authority. I don't do well with people telling me what to do. I don't do well with, you know, um, requirements like you have to be clocked in by 9am. And if you're not clocked in by 9am, then we're going to write you up. And if you do it again, then you're going to get um, a doctor day's pay. And if you do it again, then we're going to fire you. And, you know, it, it just became like a constant exhibit of you have to follow the rules. And if you don't follow the rules, then there's going to be consequences. And finally, one day I was just like, listen, I don't want to follow anybody's rules except for my own. And next thing I knew, I was in Dr. Wilbur's um, intro to mass comm class and he's talking about media and the, and he had this guy come in who was a freelance writer. And as he introduced them to uh, introduce this guy to us, he was explaining what he did and, and how, you know, he had to get fired eight times before he could be unemployed because that's the life of a freelancer. You work for several people. You don't owe anybody anything. You don't, um, you know, you are your own person and yeah, you'd make money, but you're not, you know, tied to anything. And I was like, that's what I want. <laughs> and that's when I changed my major one last time. And I graduated with journalism, convinced that I was not going to work for any one company ever. I wanted to make sure that I was the only person I had to answer to. And here, goodness, uh, this is the 13th year that I'll be a freelancer. Wow. Yeah. It, it, 
the way that the job market and the, and the workforce in this country is set up is really weird because it just assumes that everybody runs on the exact same speed on the exact same schedule. And, and that to me, you know, I'm, that's just a constant source of anxiety. It's like, I, maybe my body and my personality, I'm not built to wake up at like seven o'clock to sit in traffic for an hour. I mean, some people are legitimately happy with their career path and with doing that. But I feel like a lot of people like the character in the movie are just kind of slipping in, slipped into complacency that over time turns into something else. And that's why I think that the, the ultimate conflict in this film being basically man versus himself is so resonant because everybody feels that sense of regret, that sense of, um, you know, questioning their place in this world and you know i mean it, half the movies that came out in 1999 apparently tackled that topic pretty much head on and the fact that this film is basically about one man's struggle uh internally and how it just gives birth to something that he completely loses control of by the end i think is, is really interesting so we obviously this movie is 20 years old so we're going to get into spoilers and everything so I, I guess we should just straight up you know hit it hit it early on this is obviously one of the best movie twists of all time, right? I mean, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And, and I think we both probably, I think I knew about the twist going when I watched it, but I like forgot about it. Like I'd heard about it and then I didn't, you know, it wasn't in my head. So when it happened at the end, I was like, oh yeah, that's right. This is the movie where that happens. What was your relationship with, with the twist of the film? Did you know about it when you watched it for the first time or, or the very it? first time I had no idea. I had oh, no idea. That's awesome. And, um, and so it was just like, wait a minute, what just happened? <laughs> And, and that's like, that's when I was like, all right, I need to watch this one more time. Like, I think I watched it a second time right after I watched it the first time, because I was just like, did I see what I think I just saw? (laughs) (laughs) And I just, I loved it. I thought it was a great plot twist. I thought it was fantastic. And of course, then, you know, you go back and you watch it again and you're just like, wow, everything that leads up to it, you know, there's all these, these little hidden Easter eggs throughout the whole movie where you're like, this is what it's telling me. This is awesome. (laughs) And when I first saw it, when in 2000 and whatever that was, um, it, it, like I said, it, it, the movie hit me in such a, a dark way that I was like, I don't know how often I want to rewatch this. But yet it's become such a such a, a classic and so praised. And it's like number 10, I think, on IMDb's top 250 movies of all time as rated by users and such. And so I bought it on Blu-ray like at a... I think like a Black Friday sale or whatever. I was like, sure, okay, come on. And I had the Blu-ray sitting on my shelf for who knows how many years and to, wrapped and everything. And, I was, and I, we were doing this episode. I was like, I guess I should open this and I got to rewatch it because clearly I don't remember it. So I, this was my first time actually going back and watching it, knowing the twist and picking up on all those little things. I knew that I'd heard about some of them, um, the the flashes of Tyler. Like there's a scene early on when he's in the office where he's like a yep. one frame, like he's like there and gone. And it's kind of a reference. A lot of things in in this movie too are references to the actual movie itself because there's a whole sequence where uh, where Tyler is splicing in a, a shot of a porn film into like a family movie because he works as a projectionist, which they again flash at the very end of the movie, like the very last shot of the movie, like when it cuts to credits, it's like, and then you see like that pornogra- pornographic image of a, a man's crotch or something, and it's spliced into the movie, like sort of uh, you know subliminally, I guess. Uh, which of the do you have any particular hints or like Easter eggs regarding that that, that you that you actually uh, that you like like which are your favorites? 
Well, I can honestly tell you that I didn't see them the first time I watched them. It wasn't until the second time I saw the flick that I was like, oh, my God, that's why that's there. That's why that blip is there. And uh, and because you mentioned the fact that he's a movie projectionist in, in the beginning of it, of course, it brought me back to when mm-hmm. you and I worked at the movie theater together. Because all I could think was, huh, I wonder if any of our projectionists ever did something that naughty. <laughs> <laughs> but because why else would you become a projectionist? No, right. I'm just kidding. That's completely wrong. And I feel really bad about it. And I take it back. No, I don't. So, um, but uh, what was the question again? <laughs> like, what did you, you know, are there any specific little hints that you picked up on that maybe you didn't notice before or that you actually, that you maybe would single out as some of your favorites uh, that, are, that were basically, that are, for example, I like, I really like the fact that it's, it's um, made a big deal, of, not really made that big a deal, of, but it's mentioned early in the film that Tyler asks the narrator, who, by the way, doesn't have a name. So I guess, are we to assume that, his actual birth, like his actual name on his driver's license uh, and stuff is Tyler Durden. And that's why we never hear Edward Norton's character say his own name. I, I'm assuming that's what it is. I'm not sure. Cause we've never heard his actual name. I mean, cause even Marla makes fun of that when she's like, are you Cornelius or are Rupert you any or, of the other yeah. stupid na- Rupert or any <laughs> of the other stupid names you give every night? And it's, you know, we never do hear his real name. So yeah, who knows what's on his license? <laughs> I, I think that's also indicative of the fact that he doesn't know himself. So in a way, he doesn't have a name in this film. And a lot of things in here could be read as very symbolic that he doesn't, he's trying to figure out who he is. So he's just, all right, today I'll be Rupert. Today I'm, you know, Cornelius. Today I'm, uh, I don't know, I'll create this new, I'll be Tyler now from now on. And that's my persona. And, uh, I, early in the film, they mentioned that he uh, Tyler asks him if he wants a cigarette, and he's like, "No, I don't smoke." And then later on, you just casually see him lighting up. Little things like that that you can tell that that, that blur the lines between what way is he Tyler? Is he is he Brad Pitt now? Is he Edward Norton? Like, what's the what's the dynamic there? Um, so so I, I think that's really cool that the the way that it works in a lot of senses, like something like well, the Sixth Sense, in that you go back and and you see the way that everything was shown very strategically and like cut very strategically. The fact that they are the same person, uh, like the guys in the back of the car looking at each other, like what the hell is going on, <laughs> or um, or the fact that uh, Marla and. Tyler kind of, you know, switch off, like he switches off interacting between the two of them. It reminds him of like his parents or when, um, when the narrator and Tyler are comparing like their, 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 their childhoods, like, Oh, that sounds familiar. Things like that, that it, it really does hold together. And I think that's, to, that to me is what really separates a genius plot twist to something that just feels like pulling the rug out from under you at the 11th hour. Well, like in one of the things that they said or what that um, Edward Norton's character as the narrator says whenever he's um, making copies or something, he says, you know, if you wake up at a different time zone at a different city, could you wake up as a different person? Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, my God, that totally makes sense now. (laughs) (laughs) I think the film also has a it's kind of ballsy in that it doesn't hold back that twist until like two minutes before the end of the movie. There's like a good 20 something minutes uh, before the film ends where he figures it out and he's like, wait a minute, stitching things together, trying to u- usurp uh, Tyler's uh, position and in, in running the fight club and, and Project Mayhem and, and trying to, to stop his plans. And, and so it's, it's really, he has this big battle with himself towards the end of the movie that made me to- totally made me think of something like Liar Liar where he's kicking his ass. I'm kicking my ass. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, I, and I love that 
that uh, that visual and that way of exploring the kind of inner inner conflict between us all, where we're like, well, where where am I? Who am I? What am I doing? And then trying to figure that out and just having that play out in such a, a cinematic way. Absolutely. That, you just hit the nail on all the heads. <laughs> <laughs> all the nails and all the heads. All the nails and all the heads. <laughs> And the the entrance point for this film, I always find really interesting, too, because not only does it get into uh, specifically calling out Ikea and my beloved Starbucks um, and like the callous soul sucking job that he has and things like that, uh, but also the fact that he he starts out being addicted to support groups, which I always thought was like, that's a random place to start a movie like this. You know what? It may be random, but I now understand it. Right. Um. And the reason uh, to, to give you a little bit of background, um, you know that my dad committed suicide. And after he did, one of the first things I did is I went to a support group and, you know, you, you become enveloped in, in this, this group of people that you don't know who actually give a damn about every word that's coming out of your mouth. And I completely understand how a person could get addicted to that kind of atmosphere. So I completely get it. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. It's just not something that you would think of. Like I've, it's a really, it's a really fresh place to to start a movie. Like not only is he going to a support group because every time you see a movie, and someone's going to a support group, it's like, oh, like you know, I have alcohol. I'm an alcoholic, or I have a drug problem, or whatever. And this guy's like, yeah, no, I don't have problems. I just like to show up and and have have someone actually be legitimately compassionate towards me and my life and uh, just to feel something basically. And that, and that really establishes right out of the gate, how kind of dead he is inside that he's just goes to these things to feel things, to have some kind of connection. Well, and you know, it also shows his anxiety and depression, because they say that when their person is in that state, they are trying to do everything that they can to feel alive. And no wonder he starts a fight club where he wants to be beaten up because at least if you're being beaten up, you feel something. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it makes complete sense that he not only is fighting, but also burns himself with nitroglycerin in, in the, or excuse me, lie with lie, um, in the movie. Um, he, he talks about, um, tumors and cancer and how he almost wishes he could die because he's so bored with life that he just wants to feel alive finally. Right. Yeah. And isn't it interesting that at the end, you know, he has to all but kill himself just to feel alive. He has the ultimate near life experience towards the end of the film when he puts that gun in his mouth. Uh, Yeah, no. and, And it's, it's also a, strange and everything about this movie is strange but it's also a strange way that it it starts out this kind of bizarre love question mark story with him and and helena if i had a tumor i'd name it marla (laughs) (laughs) because you know she's obviously at a very at a very uh similar place in that yeah. she's just kind of skating by, barely surviving, wearing, you know, thrift store dresses that she got for a dollar and like living kind of like getting just basically going to these things to hear people talk and, and getting free coffee and just kind of, you know, existing kind of passively yeah. in this world. And so it's in a way, it's almost kind of a s- strangely sweet that they connect in this way. You know what I mean? Because they both obviously need someone and they, you know, they say there's someone out there for everyone. So, I mean, these two happen to meet at, 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 at 
in this context. And in that way, it's almost sort of, it's almost like Tyler is, is just this obstacle standing in the way of the two of them really kind of understanding each other because, um, I think his purely sexual relationship with her when clearly with Ty, you know, her and Tyler and then the narrator starts to develop actual caring about her as the story goes on a little bit more. I think that's just another way for him to, to feel alive without any consequences. He just, they, you know, they get together, they have this crazy sex and then they're like, okay, she's, he's, and he pushes her away. And it, it, it's, 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 it's an interesting dynamic to almost kind of try and look at this movie as, as a romance in a way. Yes, it's two broken people coming together, two broken puzzle pieces coming together to become an image. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting you were you were talking about um, about how she's broken as well because some of the things that comes out of her mouth during the movie, you're just like, what the hell did she just say? Like you know, whenever she's talking about um, yeah, oh, my, I, one of my favorite quotes <laughs> of of hers in the entire movie is when she says, "The condom is the glass slipper of our generation. Yeah, you yeah, slip yeah. one on and dance all night, and then you throw it away." <laughs> Well, there's also the the obvious. Uh, I haven't been fucked like that since grade school. That she says, and yeah, the, yeah. There's so many everything in that. Like, the, you know, I could see. I I can understand watching this now. Both why people in 1999 were like, "What the hell is this?" I, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go see the Phantom Menace or Toy Story Two or whatever other movie was out then. And yet, why it's become such a cult classic because it, it does have such a kind of punk rock energy to it that it makes sense that people that feel this way or people that are like would come to appreciate it over time because the script is really is really different and fresh and distinctive in the way that something like pulp fiction was and why that has endured in this kind of a similar fashion you know i bet you one of the reasons it bombed so badly at the box office is because people were too embarrassed to be honest that they wanted to go see it you know the, i think the reason it's become a cult classic after the fact is because that's when people were finally allowed to embrace it in the privacy of their own homes that they really genuinely loved it <laughs> yeah yeah or, and it's also probably a hard movie for the studio to sell because what do you is this a comedy is this a thriller is this what is this you know what is I mean? this a love story it, yeah exactly exactly Exactly. So yeah, how do you how do you market something with that that many plots and twists and turns? Right, and it's and it's you know it's based on a successful novel and and everything, but it's not you know it's it's not name recognition in the way that well now Marvel is everything and, and Star Wars or you know there's no big and, and that's the other thing. None of I guess Brad Pitt was was kind of a big star at this point, but this is also a w really strange performance for him. Him. Uh, and then we'll get, well, I want to when we say one other thing, then we'll get to the performances. But it's also, too, how is this movie supposed to get word of mouth? People are not supposed to talk about it. They mentioned that throughout the whole film. And yet we're doing it right now. <laughs> I know. We're breaking the rules. They're going to come out. We're totally us. breaking the rules. <laughs> no, it just means we have to fight. That's true. Yeah, this is, yeah, that's true. This is our first time at Fight Club, so we have to fight. That's the, that's, we have to fight. I All forget. Right, so what do you want to fight about? <laughs> I, I always forget that there are like eight rules that he goes into. He's like, if someone says stop, the fight is over. And it's like, there's a, there's a whole spiel that he does. I always feel like just that's the first two that's ticking people's minds. Um, but yeah, there, there is, there are eight rules to Fight Club. Uh, and that's, which is, I always forget that. I have them written down. <laughs> I had them written down too. I had them down. Do you want to go ahead? Let's run through them. Okay. The first rule, the first rule of fight club is you do not talk about fight club. The well, second okay. rule of fight club is you do not talk about fight club. Third rule of fight club. Someone yells, stop goes limp taps out. The fight is over. 
Fourth rule, only two guys to a fight. Fifth rule, one fight at a time, fellas. Sixth rule, no shirts, no shoes. Seventh rule, fights will go on as long as they have to. And the eighth and final rule, if this is your first night at Fight Club, you have to fight. I mean, if you're going to set up an underground fight club, at least he has parameters. <laughs> Do you know that they actually it. have set up underground fight clubs now? Um, like I they mean, actually exist throughout the United States? Did they not before this movie? I mean, if they, oh, I'm sure they did. But now, not to the same lot, extent. Now it's franchised not out nearly all to over the, the same country. extent. <laughs> and that's the thing, too. You like you see that throughout the course of the movie. It, it's kind of subtle because it happens mostly in the background little by little by little we're so focused in on the narrator and marla and tyler but it's like everywhere he goes like people are recognizing him or they're talking about oh there's a fight club in miami to the point that when when he realizes that he and tyler are the same person and he tries to stop him even the cops are like yeah you said you'd say that you said that if anybody tried to stop you even you that we should kick your balls basically and um it's it's insane how it, it tracks the underground movement that is Fight Club and the way that it expands from, you know, just some crazy, crazy white guys that want to punch each other because they, oh, they got all this pent up aggression to kind of an anarchist group that's just like vandalism and things like that to basically a terrorist network by the end of the film. Absolutely. So, yeah. So going into this movie, Edward Norton, Brad Pitt, Helena Bonham Carter, all Oscar nominees, yet Jared Leto, who I always forget is in this movie, is the one that has an Oscar. What's up with that, first of all? And, and what, how, what role do you think this movie played in their, those three, the three main stars' careers? Because I feel like this is the movie that probably cemented their respective places in pop culture, Edward Norton being you know, one of the, the, the brightest, uh, the best actors of his generation at that point. And I know since he's kind of faded off a little bit more, because he's supposedly difficult to work with, thing like, things like that. And I feel like this is the movie that really said, oh my, well, my, my goodness, Brad Pitt is actually like a good actor. And like, you know, not only is he like super buff and, and like sexy in this movie, but also um, he, he, this really opened up him playing a lot more character roles rather than just being the handsome leading man, like letting himself get dirty and letting himself get kind of grungy. So can you speak to that a little? And what do you, what do you think of that? I think I, I, I can't help but feel like, you know, this movie for them was, was the same thing of a stick it to the man, you know, like here I am in Hollywood trying to show I'm important. I matter. And then I read the, the script that is so different from anything else I've ever done. Of course, I'm going to jump in and see if I can even have the mental capacity to embrace these crazy characters. I mean, I think it's just a brilliant, like, education for themselves as actors. I, I think it's a brilliant idea because, you know, you like you said, he was known as uh, Brad Pitt was known as the pretty boy. And now he's showing himself getting dirty how brilliant is that to show someone I am willing to do anything you want me to give me a script and I will just act the hell out of it. <laughs> it's, it's a really smart, I mean, a movie like this, that is this bizarre and this, this kind of combination of genres and things like that. It only, it only is as good as its cast. And the fact that Edward Norton is in this film and, plays kind of a regular guy and kind of a regular guy job. And he, he, he's believable as a, you know, he looks like a regular guy. Like he's not super built. He's not super like super statuesque or handsome like Brad Pitt. And like you said, 
Brad, Put, Brad Pitt putting him in this role is completely unlike, what is it, Meet Joe Black or Legends of the Fall or, or you know, even Seven. Or even Ocean's <laughs> Eleven. Yeah, well, that, yeah, that was a couple years after this. But yeah, that well, movie. Well, I know it was far after it, but still, it's just, it, it further speaks to the fact that, you know, this is not something that is normal for him to take as a role. And, and I think that that just shows, hey, I am more than just a pretty face. Right. Let me show you what I can really do when you give me the right script. Right. And it's the same kind of thing that I think um, someone like Johnny Depp struggled with in the 90s where he was 21 Jump Street. And so he's like, no, no, no. I want to play Edward Scissorhands. I want to play Ed Wood. I want to play. And those are the movies where he's really made the best impression are playing these really oddball, like bizarro characters. Um, so, so in that, in that sense, it plays, it counterpoints nicely with Brad Pitt's image, but then Helena Bonham Carter, I kind of feel like, kind of feel like this is almost how she is. Is that weird? Cause she's plays a lot of these kinds of roles. She looks like the she corpse does bride in this dark movie. Character. Yeah. yeah. Well, it makes sense why she was with Tim Burton for so long. She looks like the, like the corpse bride in this movie, which she did the voice of. So it, it's, it's weird, uh, seeing Especially her in, in that, in that thrift store bridesmaids dress. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She's like, somebody <laughs> treasured this for a day. And now here I am just, you know, living my life in this in this one dollar dress. But yeah, I think, uh, yeah, Brad Pitt, do you feel like this is his kind of his finest hour in a way? Or do you, do you agree that this is the movie that that established him as like a legit character actor and not just a pretty boy? I think if nothing else, it just made me respect him more as as a performer. Um, but do I feel like it set him up to be better? Not really. Um because, I mean, I loved him in Seven. Right. Like, come on. Like, I mean, grant you, that was nowhere near as dark as this film is. But, you know, it still was different. <laughs> I would argue it's it's similarly dark, but not as strange as this. <laughs> Let's go that way. That's, that there movie, you go. Because that, that movie enough. had, that, that one has a lot of, like, really kind of graphic images. Um, I'm thinking specifically in this one of Meatloaf's brains basically falling out. Uh, yeah, that's kind of gross. Yeah, uh, uh, Jared Leto, who I forgot, I remember him, and I knew he was in. I remember him being in this movie, kind of, but I, I forgot that he gets beat the hell out of, beat up like like crazy, and then it's kind of all like two faced the next time we see him, uh, all like kind of deformed. I for forgot how pretty he was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was a pretty boy. <laughs> <laughs> Not anymore. Tyler, not anymore. Uh, not anymore. The narr- narrator totally took that from him. Yeah, they needed, he needed, he felt like destroying something beautiful, which is another yes. great line. And, then, and then this is one of those films where every line is kind of a great line. So it's it's funny to to see that happening in this film, and and just the way that um, I don't know, just the way that it, it captures uh, so many of these these themes about consumerism and just striking back and and does it in kind of a, a disturbing but also somehow kind of playful way um where the movie is in a way not necessarily taking itself so seriously and that makes it i think that really makes it really a, a lot more accessible rather than uh, if it was just taking itself super seriously and didn't have this this undercurrent of dark comedy and didn't um have a lot of these these meta touches to it where Tyler and uh, and the narrator are breaking the fourth wall and like talking directly to the audience and explaining things. And, and, you know, the narrator's t- talking to us about something and Tyler's like, Oh, tell him about the, tell him about the, uh, what is it? The cream of wheat or whatever. And he's like, you got the picture or whatever, things like that, where Tyler looks at the camera and the film that we're watching, that, that we're watching the movie on kind of like shifts for a second, like glitches, things like that. How do you, what, 
how instrumental do you feel that those little touches of kind of letting the movie comment on itself a little bit and have a little fun with the, the bizarreness and wackiness of its premise, how much do you feel that's integral to the, the way that it, the movie works? I think it's incredibly important because it keeps it from being a horror story. It keeps it from being a, you know, you're against the bad guy who's about to blow up all this stuff. Instead, you're rooting for him. You want him to win. You want him to feel better about himself. You want him to come out on top. And I, I think it's absolutely necessary that you add these these tones of comedy so that you don't feel so bad <laughs> as everything is playing out. The linchpin in that why the movie, as we mentioned earlier, works as a litmus test because you mentioned uh, you see early in the film or I guess midway through the film when Project Mayhem is really starting to kick off that there's like, uh, you know, government officials or whatever. And they're push- putting together like, oh, the, this, this like task force or initiative to, to stop all the vandalism in the city. And they're calling it and they very purposefully, I think, in the, uh, the screenplay sense they call it Project Hope. And I think the movie is constantly trying to find that balance between hope and mayhem and having it, you know, depending on, as you mentioned, depending on where you're coming from, what mood you're in, you, you fall on one of those two, one of those two extremes or somewhere in the middle. But at least you, you get a, gain a new perspective into both sides and can kind of maybe walk out of the movie feeling a little more self-aware about your life. That's one of the big things I noticed from Tyler is that he is super self-aware and pointing out the way that things work and the seams within, uh, within our world. I mean, that's hell. That's what, how he bonds with the narrator in his first scene is that he's commenting. He's like, Oh, what do you do for a living? He's like, Oh, why? So you could pretend like you care, like things like that. And he like cuts through the bullshit. And that's part of what I think what makes that character so, uh, so interesting. Yeah, it's a very in-your-face, like, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. You know, it's the it's the person that is going to tell you exactly like it is. And I think we all have that within ourselves, that we're telling ourselves the way that it is, but then we let the self-doubt creep in, and, and we let the, the, the fear of what others are going to think creep in. And so it makes complete sense to me that someone who has been following the rules all of their lives, they're going to create this persona to be able to do everything that they've ever wanted to do, you know, they're like they were saying, you know, we were sizing people up as we're as we're walking around and looking at them. And, uh, you know, after they're after they've been fighting for a while, it changes their perspective on everything. And and that's what we all want. We all want to be able to be confident enough to to act like our true selves. But sometimes we have no choice but to put on a fake face in front of someone else just to be able to get through it. It's it's to me the difference between the the super ego and the id. You know, everybody has those three sides of their personality, and Edward Norton's character oh, is obviously like, <laughs> wow, okay. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Edward Norton's character is like, well, this is what I have to do. I have to go to work. I have to deal with my job and my stupid boss and blah blah blah. And Tyler's like, no, no, fuck that. This is what we're gonna do. We're gonna go build soap. We're gonna go destroy buildings. We're gonna piss in, in food. You know. Uh, did they even mention at one point? Uh, Edward Norton, the narrator, mentions at one point that I guess Tyler is dealing with a class action lawsuit from within his catering company for the urine content in their in their food or whatever, which I think yes. is kind of a funny line. Um, so it's just basically about him finding, and like I mentioned earlier. Uh, Finding himself, uh, finding himself, it's the conflict within himself, and trying to to find a way for those two sides of his personality personality to coexist without like losing himself to to baser instincts. Yes, 
And one of the things that I really liked um, in the beginning of the film is, you know, the character that, that plays the narrator, Edward Norton, you know, he's, he's talking about how his, his home has blown up. And, um, cause you know, that's obviously one of the, the first scenes that we see is that his apartment with all that fancy stuff that he worked so hard to get has blown up. And so after he meets Tyler Durden, he goes and takes him out for a beer and he's like telling him about how hard it was to watch all this stuff go up in flames. And he's just so depressed about it. And Tyler looks at him and very matter of matter of factly says it could be worse. A woman could cut off your penis while you're sleeping and toss it out the window of a moving car. And it's just like those kinds of statements that, that he makes throughout the film. It's like, it's more of the in your face, like look at it as it, as it really is. Don't give me the, the bull answer. Don't give me my, my, um, your act, tell me how you're really feeling. And if you don't have the guts to just tell me like it really is, then quit talking. <laughs> right. I mean, every, every minute, this is your life. I'm going to restate it. This is your life. And it's, uh, you, you know, you're, you're basically, I'm going to paraphrase it now cause I, did, I don't have that up anymore. Uh, and it, that it's passing you by minute by minute, basically. So it's like, why waste time on, on bullshit? Just live, live your life, be our, your authentic self, which is obviously not always possible in order to live in the society that we've created for ourselves. But ideally that's what you want to feel like you're doing kind of in, in general, generally in life. Um, so it, it makes sense for him to feel like the only way he can do that is by losing, losing all hope is freedom. They say in the movie at one point. So he literally, you know, basically brings himself to the brink of death like as you pointed out so blatantly at the end of the movie by putting the gun in his mouth and like shooting out the side of his face basically uh what did you think of that moment when that happened and and like it's like i was watching and finishing that earlier today and kai walked by and she's like oh this movie's so fucking weird basically and i was like yeah basically that thing is even when i didn't remember the details of this movie that much that image isn't burned into into your uh, memory if you've seen this film. So what do you, what did you think about the way that that goes and that he has to basically kill himself to be reborn? Honestly, every time I see that scene, I, I cannot stop thinking about the quote that he says, it's only after we've lost everything that we're free to do anything. And I, I it totally goes back to the very beginning of the film. He blows up his house. He blows up everything he's ever known. And now he's free to do whatever he wants. He can finally be, whatever he wants to be. And he doesn't know what that is yet, but at least now he's started, he's, he's got the scale back to zero. He can finally figure out who the hell he is. And the, the way that the movie doles out that information, the way that, you know, um, they establish early in the movie where he's saying, Oh, you know, you could blow up enough, anything with enough soap and that, uh, he gets, he's getting the calls from the cops about like, Oh, I think somebody, you know, may have, uh, you know, may have, blown up your your condo on on purpose you have any enemies he's like enemies and uh to the tyler's off to the side like feeding him what to say and like just tell them you did it that's what they want to hear like there's all these there's, they see from the very beginning the fact that he did it himself but he's just not ready to to face that i guess he's not ready to face the consequences of what he's become or, or what he's becoming or who he really is inside I mean, would you want to be admitting oh, that no, you no. blew up your stuff? <laughs> so, yeah, of course not. Of well, course no, he's no, going to have to. But to himself, I mean, not to the cop. I mean, just to himself. But that's what, anytime we do something wrong, that's exactly what we do. They just put a face on it. They just showed it to us. They just made us look at it as two different people, even though it's the same person. 
And the voiceover, I think, in this movie is, again, such an important element as well. We've seen unreliable narrators a million times in in films and in other, you know, other storytelling. But here it's voiceover so often kind of labeled lazy screenwriting. It's it's just like an easy way to to take an audience through a film. But I feel like in this film, it really works because he's talking to us in the same way that he's talking to himself, as we find out later in the movie where he's <laughs> we see all the shots of him in, interacting with, quotes, Tyler uh, while he's sitting there We're like, oh, we should do this again sometime, dropping the beer on the floor or beating himself up. And you see those guys come out of the bar and be like, what the hell? Uh, where the camera obviously earlier in the film just cut away. And it, it really in, embraces, it involves us in the film, in his story, it, from, so that we feel the impact of that reveal as he does, you know? Yes, absolutely. So that instead of it feeling like it's a documentary, we feel like we were part of his journey. Exactly. And, and I think that draws the parallels to the fact that most of the people watching this movie are, are you know, going to go home from the theater in 1999, uh, go to sleep, wake up and go to their shitty jobs the next morning and be like, is this really all I'm meant to be? Is like uh, just a cog in the system? Or should I just start my own underground fight club and, uh, and strike back at the man? Which, again, I should point out to listeners, we're not advocating for that. But that... Um, that yes, and, <laughs> and disclaimer, do not blow up your apartment. No. Do not. <laughs> do not be part of Project Mayhem. <laughs> <laughs> but but that, that sentiment is obviously something that resonates with people. That's why, the, why we're talking about this movie 20 years later. And uh, I think even Tyler's plan, for the most part, I mean... You know, Meatloaf, unfortunately, does not does not do very well throughout the course of the movie. But for the most part, they they make he makes a very clear point of saying we're not killing anybody. Those buildings are empty, blah, blah, blah. It's just about taking down the system, not about committing mass murder. And I think that's a very clear distinction, because if they were I mean, granted, they're still terrorists, but if they were just mass murderers, just killing people left and right, that would it would be a lot harder for us to empathize with that sentiment as much as we would relate to it. I think it's uh, it makes it that that much clearer that it's really about the institution that's binding all of us. Absolutely, and if it had been a mass murderer uh, movie, then it would definitely have a different dynamic. <laughs> I, exactly, exactly. But it could easily have been that. That's you know, that's kind of the, the what I think about this movie that's so interesting. Why it's such a dark. I mean, this is a movie where the main character makes soap from human fat that he's <laughs> from liposuction clinics. So I mean, clearly this film has no problems just going dark and going strange w- with <laughs> with everything, basically. Yeah. Well, I like uh, one of the. Um, the quotes that Brad Pitt says in, in the movie, he says, little by little, you're letting yourself become Tyler Durden. And it's like, is there a little Tyler Durden in all of us? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think uh, for Just a like lot of people, there is. Just like there's a little Slim Shady in all of us? <laughs> Go well, back the, to the 90s, what? <laughs> will the real Slim Shady please stand up? Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. No. And, and I think that's, that's the truth. Everybody has that one little part of them. Where, you know, they go to work and, and their boss is like, hey, do you have those reports? And they're like, yeah, yeah, here they are. I don't care. Um, but you need to either find a way to, granted, I, I don't know, I guess there's a minority of people that are happy in their corporate jobs. I don't know. I don't think, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously not built that way. I don't think a lot of people are. But you either need to find a way to change your situation or to find that fulfillment elsewhere. And that's where the movies start. I mean, that's part of the reason, honestly, that's part of the reason that I, I started this podcast or at least refocused it is this is a creative outlet for me in my, in my day job and my, my freelance writing and things like that. 
I don't get the same level of control. I don't get to talk about movies. I don't get the same creative expression. So for him in this movie, he's if there's a short period early on where he's able to cope with a shitty corporate job because he has Fight Club to look forward to. He has that outlet to escape and to to feel like he's actually a part of something, um, you know, leading something rather than just being, as you mentioned earlier, a sheep. Because don't we all want to feel like we matter, like we're all part of something bigger than us right. that matters more than just our crappy jobs? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that's that's part of why this movie is so interesting is that it, it's all about that that awakening. And for um, hopefully most of us, that won't be homegrown terrorism. <laughs> but uh, but it, it, it's, you know, films like like this and Matrix and uh, the Matrix and American Beauty and things like that. Like people want office to, space. Office space. They want to live, which is weird. I, I really I want to see if I can find or do uh, some kind of an essay or or you know cover that a little more deeply because there's something about 1999 where the the cultural zeitgeist at that moment was just about the man. Yeah, about the man, <laughs> about turning again. But I mean, it's been like that before. But these are those are huge movies. I mean that not some of them weren't as huge at the time that have have come to be considered one of the some of the best movies of the last couple decades, and and I, I you know I think that there's something to be said for where we were as a society then and and uh, where you know what that says about about uh, the universal experience of everyone kind of dealing with the the world and dealing with life and dealing with adulthood and and seeing their the dreams that they had forged as children not play out and kind of dissipate over the years. And maybe this movie for some people inspires action. Maybe you see this, you're like, you know what? My job does suck. I should go and work that novel or go become a freelance writer or, you know, go pursue my career of, of being a musician or whatever it might be, whatever their creativity, uh, creativity and whatever their, their, wherever their passion draws them. And for most people, that's not a corporate job. So I think, I think that's uh, that's an interesting an interesting point that this film makes. And it's, it's really, uh, honestly, it's, it's really the, the kind of major takeaway for, for this film is that uh, I think, do you think David Fincher and the team behind this, do you think they were hoping to inspire people to action a little bit and, uh, and, you know, have, have, cause have this film basically be a transformative experience in a way. I think the best quote to sum up what they might've thought was I am Jack smirking revenge. Like this is my answer to all the crap that you have piled on me. And now I'm just going to tell you like it is, I'm going to put it so in your face. You can't deny it. It's, it's a, it's a really interesting, I, I still don't know if it's necessarily like my favorite David Fincher film or anything, because it, it does, it, it feels slightly, I mean, I just said, I just talked about Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which is one of my favorite movies. And that's obviously a much brighter, brighter sunnier movie than this is. Um, it's, it's movies, but is it? Are you sure? <laughs> it, it is kind of, it, no, it is kind of dark in places too. But this movie has just an underlying nihilism to it that makes it, it like I, it's, I find it entertaining and fascinating to talk about and things like that but it's hard it's, i feel like i always want to keep it slightly at a distance just because it is so maybe it's maybe the reason that i feel that way is because it is so true that it's like oh i'd rather go see you know avengers endgame or, or something again because this is like hardcore like i don't want to have to face that in a way and and it's it's telling that the movie itself is as in your face as tyler durden is um how do how do you feel do you clearly you don't feel the same way that the movie is like uh sort of off-putting in a way so okay, what what do you, what am i missing here 
maybe you're just not ready to embrace your true Tyler Erden. Maybe that's true. Maybe that's true. <laughs> <laughs> maybe well, that's what's really going on here. But you know, it's funny. I, I, was, I was just sitting here thinking about um, the fact that they make soap and isn't it interesting that they're making soap, something that cleans, but yet something that can also be so destructive. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, I think that's kind of the way it is with a lot of things. It can either be something really positive or it can be something really negative. It, it all depends on how you use it. And that's kind of how I feel about this. <laughs> yeah. It is really a microcosm for the film actually, in a way that, that you mentioned that. And, and I also think it's a little bit ironic in a way that, his Tyler's side, his side business basically, or his main business, I guess, uh, over the course of the movie is kind of making artisan soap <laughs> in a way that, in the way that like, uh, I granted Starbucks is a corporate thing, but in a way that people go out and get their grande latte enema <laughs> that he mentioned early <laughs> in the movie, which I, which is funny to me. Cause like, Oh, I, I just had a, a latte like today. Oops. Um, it makes I you feel like part of the system. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> God. Uh, so it's kind of funny that he's like a small business owner trying to sell, trying to sell his like artisan created soap, uh, but it, but bucking the system. And then there's again, this is the other reason it made me think of Sweeney Todd. In addition to the obvious Elena Bonham Carter connection, that he mentions in here that oh, we're taking like the the fat rich people taking their 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 waste basically, like they're they're having the fat sucked from their bodies and we're just kind of recycling it and selling it back to them in the way that that movie, the whole metaphor there is with the meat pies that she basically take the people that around them that suck and they kill them and they make them into meat pies and to feed them to the other people. Uh, it's kind of this like grotesque, uh, circle of life kind of thing, I guess in a way. All right. Where's the monkey holding Simba? (laughs) (laughs) Space monkey. Oh, that's That's true. (laughs) (laughs) well uh, there are so many good quotes in it but hands down my favorite quote in the entire movie that i quote every single chance i get is the things you own end up owning you yeah that is my favorite quote and i i will stand by that for like ever because i mean i have said that way too many times like seriously a lot of people that know me are probably shaking their heads like (laughs) yeah she says that way too often and every time i'm trying to like get the energy to clean out my apartment because come on let's face it we all collect clutter even mm. though we swear we won't that's the stuff i'm saying to myself as i'm trying to put it in the boxes and get it away <laughs> well that's something just in in our lives that we've really uh ad- adopted a lot this kai and i like when we have even now with birthdays and and christmases and things like that we're just like eh, we'd rather have experiences like get me concert tickets get me you know take me to this cool place or like you know let's go on a trip or whatever rather than hey here's a bunch of stuff that you could put in your house it's like, okay, we have enough of that crap. We're actually in the process of also trying to get rid of a bunch of things anyway. And the fact that we have a little girl who collects toys and and clothes and all this other stuff is just like, oh, man, what are we supposed to do with all this shit? It's a real, like, uh, yeah, I, I really get, get behind the anti-materialism uh, of this movie in, in a big way. And that's that's a good motto to have in a lot of ways, you know? It's just... So many parts of our society just feel like they're pressuring you to collect things because it's gonna that's gonna fill the emptiness inside. I mean, he, in the movie, that's what he's doing at the very beginning of the film. He's literally buying what the entire IKEA catalog, basically. Yes. Which yes. IKEA and, and, is the and, perfect and he's target. He's got to have everything clever. <laughs> yes, exactly. He, he like as if he's buying into or is he t- lying to himself that oh, okay this this will this will fix it this will you know. 
this will help me. Well, it's like whenever he says, you know, you tell yourself, if I get that sofa, at least I got that sofa thing figured out, you know, um, right. or, you know, exactly. he was getting a wardrobe that was finally becoming really respectable and now it's all gone. You know, it's like, so, so what? At least you're alive. At least you are surviving. And that's what's more important than any of the crap you could have acquired over these last several years. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I mean, here's an interesting question, though. That everybody, I think, in general has a, a problem with buying too much crap, uh, which we don't need. Because honestly, when you boil it down to its basics, the bare necessities, uh, there is not a whole lot of stuff that you really need in your house. Like a little bit of furniture, somewhere to sit, somewhere to sleep, food to eat, clothes to wear. But, you know, we all take it to the nth degree. However, I feel like everybody still has their their purchasing vice, their their con, their consumer vice that they're like, okay, well, I have to get this. For me, being a movie person, obviously, I'm on a I have a movie podcast. It's Blu-rays, so I will buy DVDs and Blu-rays like like mad. I will just go to the the used uh, DVD used record store down the street here, and I'll spend twenty bucks on movies that I've seen before that I'll have in in a room on a shelf. Maybe watch eventually. I mean, I just said at the top of the show that I had my club on Blu-ray that was sitting there for, I don't know how many years, five years, seven years, who knows, sitting there unopened (laughs) that I had no urge to open it necessarily because I had hundreds of other movies. Do you have a specific vice when it comes to purchasing things that you're like, oh, I really shouldn't get, you know, get this, any more of these items. I have enough of this, but yeah, I'm going to do it anyway. Craft supplies. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That, um, you know, they say glitter's, glitter is the herpes of crafting. And, and uh, yeah, so that that's mine, craft supplies. Because I convince myself that I'm going to make beautiful things. And so I buy all the supplies and then I don't make anything. <laughs> <laughs> because, and it's so interesting because I actually just saw um, something on Pinterest the other day. It said there is a very distinct difference between buying the craft supplies and making the crafts. Those are two different hobbies. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So yeah, thanks for airing my dirty laundry right there. Appreciate that. <laughs> and I, so I think everybody has those things, whether whether it's you know craft supplies or or Blu-rays or books or shoes or uh, you know or I guess fedoras for me is a little bit. I only have one head, ah, but I have funny. like I only had one head to put hats on, but they have like maybe six, eight, something like that. I probably wear two or three of them on a regular basis. So I haven't let that get too out of control yet. But uh, I think I think the I knew a woman that had 27 pairs of black shoes, but they were all different styles. So I think you're all right. Yeah, that's too many. That's too many. Pairs <laughs> of shoes. Especially it's not even that many pairs of sh- I mean, 27 pairs of shoes to me is already a lot. But 27 pairs of the same color shoes is just like, OK, it's, it's, they were all black. <laughs> they were all black shoes, you know, dr- different dress shoes, strappy ones, flip flops, wow. all the things. Jeez. <laughs> At least we're being self-aware of that. You know, I think thanks to Fight Club and other experiences in our lives, the fact that we're owning up to the, yeah, this is all, I shouldn't have so much stuff, but I have this one box of this one giant, I don't know how many boxes of craft supplies you have in your house. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just uh, giving you benefits. I won't disclose that information (laughs) and I will not, I I don't want that to be held against me in a court of law. (laughs) There you go. Um, I, I think, you know, it's a, at least being aware of the system around you, however you, you, whatever you choose to do from that point on is, is up to you. But I think the, this movie helps to, to really, uh, highlight that that is the case and, you know, get, empower people to, to feel like if they want to make changes to do that. Uh, one other question, and then we'll start, start 
kind of uh, finishing up the show. Uh, there was okay. Chuck Bohanek actually did a sequel, uh, like in comic book form in 2015, 16. Do you, would you even want to see any kind of follow up to this movie or do you think he should just leave it alone? Like, would you be curious to find out what's going on with, uh, I guess the narrator, Tyler, I whatever. I do not want to know. <laughs> I want, I want to keep the beautiful story that I have in my head as to what happened after the buildings burned down. <laughs> I want to keep that in my mind. They got married. They were happy. They had babies. They're fine. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to think about what might have actually happened. Come on now. (laughs) Although then again, if you ask me that question when I'm in a bad mood, I I might be like, yeah, tell me they blew up more. (laughs) (laughs) It's actually interesting, you know, uh, uh, rewatching it uh, a couple nights ago. um, One of the things that had happened in the film is, you know, they blow up these buildings and then they're convinced that that's going to set the scales back to zero. And all I could think from a, you know, we're in the age of technology era is, well, they probably have it backed up on servers. They just blew up those buildings for nothing. Yeah. How are you going to destroy the cloud? (laughs) <laughs> right, exactly. It's still in the cloud. You know, what is it they said in um, in that uh, movie sex tape with uh, Cameron Diaz and, oh God, whatever his name is. He's like, once it's in the cloud, you can't get it back down from the cloud. <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. Jeez. I, and then you get that great usage of, I think what is, I think it's the Pixies, Where Is My Mind There, which is an iconic now uh, application of a, an existing song to a movie and that image with the two of them holding hands, which is both kind of haunting, but also kind of beautiful at the same time, question mark. Uh, I, I think it's, it's a really bittersweet note for the film to go on that serves both, both interpretations of the story, I think, too. And a hashtag bad romance. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hashtag little monsters. Uh, is yes. there is there anything about Fight Club that we didn't talk about that you wanted to make sure we mentioned? Well, I mean, we've already broken all the rules That's of true. talking about it. That's true. So, um, I, 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 what is it he says? Uh, I still can't think of anything. <laughs> nice, nice, good. <laughs> I, I like that. You know, I feel like you mentioned that uh, about what your favorite quote from the film is, but I like that you basically mentioned I don't know seven or eight of them throughout the course of this episode. I just, it's just, it's just a, a testament to how good the script is that we keep just being like, oh, you know, it's like they say in the movie. Blah, 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 yes, blah, blah. So, absolutely. Because, I mean, there's just, there are so many good quotes in the movie. And if you didn't catch a good quote, then you didn't get the movie. Right. <laughs> uh, Ashley, famous Ashley Grant, it was great having you back on the show. Uh, can you tell people a little bit of, about where they can find you on social media? Everybody can find me on, at famousashleygrant.com. And I am also on Instagram at famousashleygrant. Cool. Well, I'm glad that we got to break both of the first two rules of Fight Club for, what is it, roughly over an hour and, and, and change here. So uh, thank you so much again for coming on. And we'll definitely, I feel like now we have, because Kai mentioned that we talked about Fight Club in the last episode, I feel like now we have to, we're pressured to see what our next collaboration will be down the line. But uh, I, I don't, nothing's coming to, to, well, nothing's coming to my mind. If, if I you, still can't think of anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice callback. I can't think of a better I, I, way to, to Flashback humor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it's, it's, it's you know, set up and, and pay off. That's exactly what that is. So uh, you're planting the seeds of the big plot twist that will come in the, in the next episode. I almost feel like because of the fact I, I mentioned seven at least twice that we have to talk about seven next time. That would we'll be we'll a good, figure it out. Yeah, that would be a good, uh, a good follow-up to this Brad Pitt, David Fincher joint, I guess. So yeah, yeah, we'll, because we haven't sinned enough right now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> nice. There you go. Well, we've sinned by talking about Fight Club. 
There you go. Yes, we'll, we, we'll, we broke the cardinal rule. And we'll leave it there <laughs> for the next time. Thank you so much, Ashley. This has been fun. Thank you. Okay, bye. If you're interested in joining me on the show to chat about one of your favorite films, head on over to crookedtable.com slash guest. Or you can consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash crookedtable. Of course, you can always find more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies over at crookedtable.com. Until next time, this has been the Crooked Table Podcast, and I've been Rob. This has been a production of crookedtable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of a little KED.